Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 32, Genesis chapter 35. Okay, chapter 35 is really deep and rich in information, but it's, it's largely hidden to our view due to the Greek and English translations. So we're going to kind of detour around a bit this week and connect some dots that have been ex kind of obscured over the centuries. And we're also going to use this as an opportunity to review some of the more difficult deci to decipher, but quite critical matters and principles that lay, he lay their foundations here um, in chapter 35 for all that's going to come later. So let's read together Genesis chapter 35. If uh, you've got the complete Jewish Bible, it is page 38. Genesis chapter 35. God said to Yaakov, Get up, go to Bethel, and live there, and make there an altar to God, who appeared to you when you fled Esau, your brother. Then Yaakov said to his household and all the others with him, Get rid of the foreign gods that you have with you, purify yourselves, and put on fresh clothes. We're going to move on and go up to Bethel. There I will build an altar to God who answered me when I was in such distress and stayed with me wherever I went. Then they gave Yaakov all the foreign gods in their possession and the earrings they were wearing, and Yaakov buried them under the pistachio tree near Shechem. While they were traveling, a terror from God fell upon the cities around them so that none of them pursued after the sons of Yaakov. Yaakov and all the people with him arrived at Luz in the land of Canaan. He built there an altar and called the place El Bethel because it was there that God was revealed to him at the time when he was fleeing from his brother. Then Devorah, Rivka's nurse, died. She was buried below Bethel under the oak which was given the name Alon Bachut. And after Yaakov arrived from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Yaakov, but you will be called Yaakov no longer. Your name will be Israel. Mm -hmm. Thus he named him Israel. God further said to him, I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, indeed a group of nations, will come from you. Kings will de be descended from you. Moreover, the land which I gave to Avraham and Yitzhak, I give to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him there where he had spoken with him. And Yaakov set up a standing stone in the place where he had spoken with him, a stone pillar. Then he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. Yaakov called the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Then they traveled on from Bethel, and while there, there was still some distance to go before arriving in Ephrat, Rachel went into labor, and she had great difficulty with it. While she was undergoing this hard labor, the midwife said to her, Don't worry, this is also a son for you. But she died in childbirth. And as she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni, son of my grief. But his father called him Ben-Yamin, son of the right hand, son of the south. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrat, that is Bethlehem. Yaakov set up a standing stone on her grave, and, it's still stand, and, and it is the standing stone of Rachel's grave to this very day. Israel continued his travels, pitched his tent on the other side of Migdal Eder. It was while Israel was living in that land that Rehoboam went in and slept with Belah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Yaakov had twelve sons. The sons of Leah were Rehoboam, Yaakov's firstborn, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yeshachar, and Zebulun. The sons of 
Rachel, were Yosef and Benjamin. The sons of Belah, Rachel's slave girl, were Don and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's slave girl, were God and Asher. These were Yaakov's sons born to him in Padan Aram. Yaakov came home to his father, Yitzhak, at Mamre, near Kiryat Arba, also known as Hebron, where Avraham and Yitzhak had lived as foreigners. Yitzhak lived to be 180 years old. Then he breathed his last, died, and was gathered to his people, and an old man, full of years, and his sons Esau and Yaakov buried him. Well, in verse 1, God orders Jacob, Yisrael, to pack up and move to Beit El. Or, as we more often call it, Bethel. The place where so many years earlier, Jacob had uh, stopped on his journey out of Canaan. On his way up to Mesopotamia. And that's where he saw the vision of those angels ascending and descending on the ladder or the stairway, all right, between earth and heaven. Now, in turn, at this moment, Jacob now orders his entire household to get rid of all their idols and idolatrous symbols. Now, the sacking of Shechem by Israel's sons and the taking of many of Shechem's people had introduced a lot of newcomers um, into Israel's clan. And these newcomers in particular, though not alone, worshipped other gods. Even more, Jacob's sons would have stolen the god idols of Shechem. Because this, by their way of thinking, would have stolen power away from Shechem. It was the norm for an invader or a conqueror to steal his enemy's gods. Because in in a very tangible way, they felt that it weakened their enemies in addition to humiliating them. The phrasing of God's instruction to Jacob points out the mindset of that time. And to me, it demonstrates the supreme patience of Yehovah in developing and maturing his infant nation of Israel. So I want to dwell on this for a couple of minutes. Notice the proper translation of verse 1. Has God telling Jacob to build an altar at Bethel to the God who appeared to you? He didn't say build an altar to me. Okay, This is kind of an odd way for Yehovah to refer to himself as the God who appeared to you. Kind of third person. Because it has this built-in implication that there are other gods. But, but he's the particular God that appeared to Jacob at Bethel. Uh, according to the traditional ways of that era, it was thought that gods were many and they were territorial in addition to having specific job descriptions. And gods from different territories would fight against gods from other territories. Or perhaps one god was seen as more powerful than another. So in Mesopotamia, for example, where they had just come from, the god of rain was only the god of rain for Mesopotamia. He wasn't the god of rain for somewhere else. All right, because there were other gods of rain in other places. Everybody believed this way. Everybody. Right? And we really don't find Jehovah hammering away, making a point that he's the only god that exists. Rather, he characterizes himself as Jacob's god. We have no record of Yehovah telling Jacob while up in Mesopotamia to build an altar to him up there, and I doubt that it happened. Because Yehovah was a god that was associated with the land of Canaan, not Mesopotamia. 
But now that Jacob was back in Canaan, the God of the promise, the God of the promised land, Jehovah, tells Jacob to build him an altar there. Made perfect sense to Jacob. Alright? And probably most of his tribe, even the newcomers, although they had no idea what reality actually was in this situation. Now I tell you this, because as we read through the Torah, understand that just who Yehovah is and how he operated and where his sphere of influence began and ended was just as fuzzy to the minds of the Israelites as was the concept of what happened to somebody after they died. Certainly, after the Exodus, Yehovah defined himself much more extensively. But people just didn't forget centuries of traditions. Okay. Rather, Israel tended to understand Yehovah and who he was within the context of their long-held beliefs and traditions. He was just added to the mix. Yehovah was their God, Jacob's God, Israel's God. But what happened when their God matched wits and powers with a God for a pe another people of another land? Who knew? Okay. This was constantly on their minds. So here we are, two centuries after Abraham got the call, and still Jacob doesn't quite get who God is. And his wives and the others who have made themselves part of his family certainly don't get it either. So as part of an ongoing education process by Yehovah, we see Jacob saying, Okay, now that we're under the sphere of influence of my God, we're going to build an altar to him here. So, cause, so I don't want your gods upsetting my God. All right, and besides, your gods are useless here in a ter territory that's outside their primary area of influence anyway. So give them to me, and I'm going to bury them under a tree. Why bury them? Why not smash them, burn them? Because this was more a repudiation of the power of their gods than an absolute belief that those gods didn't exist. Now, towards the end of this chapter, I'm going to show you another statement that very much points to Jacob and the Israelites still following traditions and customs and mindsets that they held quite dear, yet they were also quite in error. Now, the part in verse 4 about getting rid of the earrings has nothing to do with God condemning ear jewelry. Okay. These rings, these earrings, were worn in honor of foreign gods. They were amulets. Okay. So they too had to be removed from their midst and buried. And as part of the process, they were instructed to change clothes, to purify themselves. Changing their clothes usually meant just washing them. All right, or changing into clean ones. The changing of clothes was a, a rather usual part of the purification procedures of Middle Eastern nations at that time. Now, these idols and symbols and amulets were buried under what some Bibles call oak trees, others pistachio. All right. Actually, the real name is a terebinth tree. That It is of the pistachio family, but it's definitely not an oak. All right, and I'm not quite sure where that notion ever came from, but you're going to see it in Bible after Bible. Well, anyway, after purifying themselves and burying those foreign god symbols, the clan moves on to Luz. And there Israel builds that altar. Now, don't let the name Luz confuse you. Luz was simply the name the Canaanite peoples called that place. Hebrews called it Bethel. Okay, we'll see a lot of this double naming in the Bible, often using both the Canaanite and the Hebrew names and switching back and forth. Now suddenly, we get this interesting little aside in the scriptures. Now you'll recall that when Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, bought, brought Rivka, Rebekah, back from Mesopotamia as a wife for Isaac, that her nurse, her nanny, all right, accompanied 
her back to Canaan. Well, now this much-beloved nurse, Deborah, dies. And there's a lot of grieving in the camp. But why does the Torah even mention Deborah, all right, a seemingly minor role player in the grand scope of things? After all, the deaths of the matriarchs Rivka and Leah, prominent female figures in the creation and formation of Israel, aren't even recorded. Okay. While the explanation for this isn't universally accepted among Jewish scholars, it is generally thought that Deborah represents a link between Israel and Mesopotamia. A link that God is in the process of dissolving. Okay. We have examined in an earlier lesson that for Abraham and Isaac, and really up to this point Jacob, Mesopotamia was, as far as they were concerned, much more their homeland than Canaan. But Canaan was the land God set apart and promised to Abraham and his descendants. And so God wanted to erase any notion of ties between Israel and a foreign land, Mesopotamia. So the death of Deborah is almost a metaphor. All right, for the death of any family ties or relationship between Israel and the land of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. Well, God appears once again to Jacob. And part of what's communicated by God is his reassurance and reiteration of stuff that Jacob really had already been told. For instance, that his new name, therefore his new nature, is Israel. Now, like all of us, Jacob needed God to constantly remind him of the truth, especially if it brought with it a new reality. And, of course, of his commands and of his directions for him. Yet there's another reason for God to repeat this command for a name change. Jacob had that new name given to him outside of the land of Canaan. It was given to him by divine oracle on the other side of the Jordan River, outside of the promised land. Now that Jacob is inside the promised land, it has to be reaffirmed. Why? Because in Jacob's mind, just like in the minds of all the peoples of the world in that era, gods were numerous and they had territories. Okay. When Jacob's name was first changed to Israel, he was still in the province of the Mesopotamian gods and therefore under the, their sphere of influence. Now that Jacob's in Canaan, he's in the province of El Shaddai. Right. The God whose territory is Canaan. And so he needs El Shaddai to affirm that it was he, that what he told him still stands. Right. Now, did Jacob believe there were other gods? Absolutely. Okay. That Jacob mistakenly thought this is true, we, of course, know his thinking was false. All right. Yet God showed grace and mercy and kind of played along. And he didn't insist that all at once Jacob was to understand all the truths about God, that he is one that he is the God of everything, that there are no such things as other gods. Okay. Don't think for a minute that God doesn't play along with each of us on matters that may prove in the course of time to be error. I mean, for reasons I cannot fathom, all right, he has allowed the church to go unchallenged for centuries in our belief that we had replaced Israel. Something that was absolute man-made doctrine. All right? And the Holy Scripture completely refutes it. Somehow he used that blind spot in the church for good. To spread the gospel to the Gentiles of the world. But over the last 50 years, he's begun to correct us. Showing, that, showing us that he's never replaced Israel with us. Nor did he ever decide he was finished with his people. That time when the church will make the Jewish people jealous for our faith 
and the stony hearts of his people will be softened so that they can accept their own Messiah is upon us. Okay. Now, there was another part of this conversation from God that on the surface seems redundant, but a little closer look throws a different light on the matter. And this is the uh, important stuff. So I want to take another one of those little detours I told you about at the onset of this lesson. One of the best descriptions I have ever heard of the way God operates through the Bible is that he progressively reveals truths, truths to us using the word, the Holy Scripture, in concert with the Holy Spirit. That somehow, some way, men go along for decades and centuries utterly blind to a great scriptural truth and then suddenly, hopefully we see it, that Yehovah reveals progressively really shouldn't be so tough to accept. If you pick up any piece of literature, a novel, an essay, whatever, about which you have no prior knowledge and begin to read it, page after page, you get more information as the characters are developed, the plots unfolded, details are added, and then the conclusions arrived at. This is an example of the simplest sense of progressive revelation. In the case of scripture, so much of what is told in the world in the word is prophetic. Okay? Most often, the prophecies are both literal and symbolic simultaneously. And it was happening then, and it was going to happen again. They repeat. I mean, the difficulty for us in dealing with prophecy comes in that the literal truth about what is going to happen in the future is told by Scripture within the context of the ancient culture and language of the people at the time at which it was written. So although we can look forward in time and space to a degree by studying Bible prophecy and fairly clearly see the major prophetic milestones, the details can be pretty shadowy. Yet, as the time for a particular prophecy draws closer, okay, the final pieces of the puzzle start to fall into place and formerly shadowy details start to come into focus. As an example, we learn in Genesis 1 that the seed of the woman will strike or bruise the head of the serpent. I got news for you. Adam and Eve were utterly clueless as to what that meant. They didn't know. They had no idea what that meant. You know, and if we read no further than those verses, we'd be in the dark too. But progressively, page by page, through scripture, we learn more details about how it's all going to happen. From Adam to Seth, details are added. From Seth to Noah, more details are added. From Noah to Shem, then to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, and now where we are in Genesis to the births of the tribes of Israel. The puzzle pieces keep appearing, new information gets added, and the picture starts to develop. We're at a point right now in our study where the exact tribe, Judah, has now been created from which that seed of the woman who will come to defeat Satan and restore man's relationship with God has happened. Jacob didn't know that. We only know that Jacob's son Judah is going to be that special tribe because we have the benefit of hindsight. Okay? Of studying the recorded history of prophecy as it's being revealed to us and now at a breathtaking rate, it's happening in modern society. We know every important detail, the order it happened, generally how it happened, and what it all meant. Yeshua, our Savior, paid for our sins and conquered death. The seed of the woman struck the head of the serpent and defeated him at the cross. We know that now. Most of the prophecies of the Bible have already been fulfilled. 
Okay? Yet there are a few that have yet to happen. As each prophecy is fulfilled and we can see how it happened, we get a better picture of how unfulfilled prophecies might happen. For instance, in many of our lifetimes, we have seen Israel reborn as a nation. Christians had given up on that for centuries. The Jews had given up on that for centuries. And then, just a few years later, we saw Jerusalem taken back from the Gentiles. Another prophecy fulfilled. Now this information and the way it all happened now gives us insight into the next round of prophecies to be fulfilled. Information that the generations just before us didn't even have. Yet we still don't have all the details. Now add to this that the Holy Spirit, which is our true teacher and revealer of God's mysteries, supernaturally quickens men's minds and spirits at the proper moment in history in order that we might see and understand things in the scripture that for some reason mankind had been blind to. What an amazing process. Aren't we privileged? In our time, this recent understanding of a spiritual connection between the church and the Jewish people and the more recent yearning by many believers to knock down this terrible wall of partition between Christian and Jew and this very recent love of Israel that we find exploding within the church is a fine example of this mysterious progressive revelation at work. Where did it come from? So as we go through the Old Testament, don't be surprised that we will see some things differently than scholars a mere 50 years ago, in some cases 15 or 20 years ago, could not see. Because the details were just too shadowy. But now they're clearer. And I'm about to show you a case in point. God says to Jacob in verse 11. Now follow me, please, very closely on this. God says to Jacob in verse 11, A nation, indeed a company of nations, will come from you. A better translation is, A nation and, and a company of nations will come from you. In other words, God is not saying, a nation, oh, check that. Make that a whole bunch of nations. All right, is going to come from you. Rather, he's saying there's going to be a particular nation and in addition, a group of nations that will come from Jacob. See the difference? Well, it gets more complex. Okay, We saw that in Genesis 28.3, God promised to Jacob a company of nations back then. But when we looked up the Hebrew, the words kahal amim were used for company of nations. And this is as opposed to what Abraham was told when God told Abraham that he would be a father of a nation and then later he told him he would be the father of many nations. The word used for nation in that instance with Abraham was goy. Okay. God told Abraham, you will be the father of goy. Okay. A nation at large. An unspecified nation. Okay. On the other hand, God told Jacob that he would produce a kahalamim, if you would, a convocation of fellow countrymen. That's what that means. Okay? Abraham would produce a variety of nations and peoples. Jacob would produce a certain kind of homogeneous and, if you would, holy people, united in purpose. That would be the congregation of Israel. Quite a difference. Well, some time has passed now since Genesis 28. Here in chapter 35, verse 11, things once again have evolved. God now tells Jacob basically the same thing he told Abraham, employing the Hebrew word goy in verse 11, meaning nations at large. But there's an important 
difference between what was said to Abraham and what was said to Jacob. Because God says that Jacob will produce, this is strange, a holy convocation of Goy. Hmm. Let me review with you that by Jacob's day, God had divided the world into two kinds of people. Hebrews and everybody else. That was the division. Goy was the name for everybody else. You had Hebrew and you had Goy in Jacob's day. A little different in Abraham's day. But in Jacob's day, that was the definition. So allow me now, you've got that understanding, allow me to paraphrase that part of verse 11 that I'm talking about because I think that this brings us a little closer to the meaning. He says in verse 11, Be fruitful and multiply a nation, and in addition a holy convocation of both Hebrew and non-Hebrew nations will come from you. Now that may sound confusing and a little bit like double talk till we realize all of these conditions promised to Jacob would eventually prove to be true. See, technically, Jacob was the first person to produce only Hebrew children. The 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's father, think back, Jacob's father Isaac produced Hebrews, Jacob, and non-Hebrews, Esau. Okay. Isaac's father, Abraham, also produced Hebrews, Isaac, and non-Hebrews, Ishmael and many others. Later, in an event that we're going to cover right towards the end of Genesis, Jacob does this strange thing. He adopts his son Joseph's two Egyptian children away from him with one of them, Ephraim, taking over the authority that would have been Joseph's. Even later, hundreds of years after that event, Ephraim, an Israelite tribe that had Egyptian blood mixed in it, would be scattered by the conquering Assyrians and the genes of the bulk of that population would become fused with the Gentile world. Okay. Then, in a prophetic event that's yet to occur, as recounted in Ezekiel, Ephraim will somehow be reunited with the remnants of the tribe of Judah, the modern-day Jews. Why am I spending so much time with this prophecy of Genesis 35:11? Because its manifestation has begun this year. You see, this prophecy connects seamlessly. This prophecy of Genesis 35:11 connects seamlessly with the prophecy of Ezekiel 37 that explains that in the end times Ephraim and Judah are going to supernaturally be brought back together. Now with Genesis 35 in mind, listen to you listen please and we're going to go a little long tonight so hang in there. I want to read you Ezekiel 37, beginning with verse 15. What I want you to listen for is this. God, First, God is going to state that he is going to somehow bring his lost and scattered Hebrew people back home. A large portion of them are going to be non-Hebrews. A big portion is going to be Hebrews. Don't ask me how that's all going to work. All right, I don't know. All right. And he's going to rejoin it with the group that has steadfastly retained its Hebrew identity, Judah, the Jews. Then I want you to listen to just how God is going to do it. Then think about the holy convocation of Goy that would eventually come from Jacob and watch as that holy convocation is brought to fruition. It's, it's an amazing thing that goes on in, in Ezekiel. And it's one of those things that a lot of people are taking different tacks on as to exactly what it means, and I believe they're very premature right, in making those decisions. Okay, Ezekiel 37, if you have the complete Jewish Bible, is page 691. 
I'm going to start reading at, I think I'll start reading at verse 12. Therefore prophesy. Say to them that Adonai Elohim says, My people, I will open your graves and make you get up out of your graves and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Adonai when I have opened your graves and made you get up out of your graves, my people. And I will put my spirit in you and you will be alive. Then I will place you in your own land and you will know that I, Adonai, have spoken that I have done it, says Adonai. The word of Adonai came to me. You human being, take one stick and write on it for Yehuda, for Judah, and those joined with him among the people of Israel. Next, take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel who are joined with him. Finally, bring them together into a single stick so that they become one in your hand. Finally, when your people ask you what all this means, tell them that Adonai Elohim says this, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hands of Ephraim, together with the tribes of Israel who are joined with him, and put them together with the stick of Judah, and make them a single stick so they become one in my hand. The sticks on which you are to write are to be in your hand as they watch. Then say to them that Adonai Elohim says, I will take the people of Israel from among all the nations where they have gone and gather them from every side and bring them back to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king will be king for all of them. They won't be two nations. They will never again be divided into two kingdoms. They will never again define the, uh, de de defile themselves with their idols, their detestable things, or any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the places where they've been living and sinning, and I'll cleanse them so that they will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and all of them will have one shepherd, they will live by my rulings and keep and observe my regulations. They will live in the land I gave to Jacob, my servant, where your ancestors lived. They will live there. They, their children, their grandchildren forever. And David, my servant, will be their leader forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will give to them, increase their numbers, and set my sanctuary among them forever. My home will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. The nations will know that I'm Adonai who sets Israel apart as holy when my sanctuary is with them forever. It's a powerful prophecy. God has brought the holy convocation to its fullest in this prophecy. He is dwelling now with his holy convocation. A member of the house of David will be eternally Israel's, our, the whole world's king. Who's that king? Yeshua. All of the holy convocation will have one shepherd. Yeshua of the house of David. Now, how's this going to happen? Well, it's just too shadowy to, to really know. Okay? But I can tell you with absolute certainty that the process of bringing Ephraim back together with Judah is underway. It's happening now. Just this year, the government of Israel has recognized that the ten, quote, lost tribes, we can throw that away, all right, forget about the lost part, that make up Ephraim weren't so lost after all. And that they do exist. And that they've retained a memory right, of their Hebrew heritage over 2,500 years. These people are now being allowed to migrate back to Israel. Not as Jews, but as Israelites, as Ephraimites. And the first hint of this event is what we have just read in Genesis 35.11.
This is decidedly not a repeat and reiteration of what God told Abraham and then Isaac. This is progressive revelation at work. Now, I know this is new, and you probably didn't get all of it. All right. Part of that's because in biblical scholarly writings published before about 1990, yeah, 1990, you're not going to find much, if anything, that discusses Ephraim. Okay. Therefore, you certainly haven't heard very many sermons about this sort of thing in mainstream denominations. Okay. Yet, Ephraim is made so very central in the prophetic scriptures of Isaiah and Ezekiel concerning the latter days. I mean, how have our Christian and Jewish scholars overlooked this when the role of Ephraim, even if it's not fully defined, all right, has become so important and apparent today? I'll tell you why. What in time yet? All right, and because it took several other events to lead us to even see the importance of Ephraim in Scripture. So those of us who have caught the vision need to be thankful that God's blessed us with it. Okay? And to be very patient with the 99% of the church and the Jewish community who know nothing of it. Okay? It wasn't that long ago we were right there with them. Well, Jacob's about to move on, so maybe we ought to move on with him. But I'm trying to decide if we ought to end it right here for tonight. I'd really like to finish this up. Um, I'm going to make you sit there. Hang on, hang in there with me. Let's finish this. From Bethel, the clan now moves on to a place called Ephrat. A long time later, Ephrat's going to become to known as Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the birthplace of Christ. Uh, Jacob's beloved. Rachel dies giving birth to his last son, the twelfth and final tribe of Israel, Benjamin. And during childbirth, suspecting she wasn't going to survive, Rachel names this baby Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. But later, probably after Rachel passed, Jacob renamed him Ben-Yamin, right, son of happiness, son of old age, son of the south. It kind of all goes together. We call him Benjamin. Rachel was buried... And Israel moved again a short distance, this time near a place called Migdal Eder, which means Tower of the Flock, or Watchtower of the Flock. Okay? 1,800 years later, this will be the tower from which the shepherds watching over their flocks in the fields at night will see and hear angels announce and rejoice at the birth of the Savior of the world. This exact spot. The site of Rachel's tomb was well known hundreds of years later. And the books of Samuel speak of the stone marker set upon her grave as a famous landmark. That site exists today only about a mile north of Bethlehem. Okay. It was also near here that in one simple statement, and really this is the reason I wanted you to hang on tonight, because this is fascinating. We're told that Jacob's firstborn son, Reuben, slept with Jacob's concubine, Bila. And Jacob was aware of it. Now, Bila had been Rachel's servant girl. Nothing else is really said about this transgression for now. But in time, it's going to prove to have an enormous bearing on the future of Israel. Let's take another one of our little detours here and examine the situation between Reuben and Bila, because it says much about the culture of that time and it has a great bearing on the future of Israel. It is no coincidence that Rachel's death and then Reuben's taking of Bela are spoken of one after the other because they're directly linked. Okay. Bela was Rachel's handmaiden. But Bela was also a concubine wife 
of Jacob. Okay. Bela bore Don and Naphtali. Reuben did a very calculating thing in having sex with Bela. His intent was that as a result, Jacob could not do something that was quite common in that day. He could not elevate his concubine wife, Bela, to the position of a full legal wife. Reuben was Leah's son. And as we think back to the story of the mandrakes that Reuben gathered for his mother. I mean, imagine this. You've got a son running around getting an aphrodisiac for his mom to take to their dad. Okay? Reuben was acutely aware of his mother's status in the eyes of his father, Jacob. Rachel was first. Leah was a distant second. And as far as Reuben and his mother, Leah, were concerned, Rachel's death afforded them an opportunity. An opportunity for Leah to finally gain in status as Jacob's one and only legal wife, and therefore his most beloved. However, Reuben was worried that Jacob might decide to comfort himself with Rachel's handmaiden, Bilah, rather than Leah, his mom. This was a lot more than simple jealousy or emotion. Okay? The status of being the son of Jacob's favorite wife brought with it tangible benefits. And after all these years of playing second fiddle to Joseph and Joseph's mom, Rachel, he wasn't about to have Bela interfere with all this. Okay? By taking Bela, he ruined her. Okay, no way now could Jacob legally marry Bela. For by having sex with Reuben, she was now made undesirable. Okay, it would have been shameful beyond imagination for Jacob to marry a woman who had slept with another man, particularly that man being his own son. Therefore, and here's the interesting part to me, it's interestinger and interestinger, Reuben wanted this act to be known. It was necessary that what he did with Bela be known so that Jacob wouldn't accept Bela and therefore Leah, his mother, would become Queen Bee. That's why those four little words at the end of verse 22 and Israel knew or Israel found out are so key. Jacob had to find out if Reuben's plan was going to work. Okay. In the Talmud is a statement about this matter that kind of sums it all up rather well. And it says this. He, Reuben, said, If my mother's sister was a rival to my mother, must the maid of my mother's sister be a rival to my mother? That was, the problem. that was the problem. Now let me put a cherry on top of this. During this era, it was customary that a leader who vanquished another leader or a son who took over leadership from his father, presumably because of his father's death or incapacitation, that new leader also took possession of the old leader's concubines. Okay. The possession of the former leader's concubines by the new leader was an affirmation and validation of that new leader's status and authority. Okay. This entire episode between Reuben and Bela represented a clearly understood challenge to Jacob's authority as leader of Israel. Reuben's act was cunning and it was political. Okay. Having sex with Bela had nothing to do with a few moments of pleasure. It was a blatant coup attempt. Reuben wanted to be the leader of Israel. That is why sometime later, 
Jacob would remove Reuben from the office of the firstborn and give it instead to Judah. Listen to Jacob as he nears the end of his life and he gathers his sons together to pronounce the blessing upon them. And we find this in Genesis 49. I'll just read it to you. Genesis 49.1 Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. You went to my couch. Reuben's attempt to replace his father prematurely not only didn't happen, it backfired so completely that Reuben lost the rights of the firstborn. Now, after a concise listing of Jacob's sons, we're given the interesting piece of information that Jacob, Israel, came home to his father Yitzhak at Mamre. In other words, Isaac lived to meet all of his grandchildren through Jacob. And then Isaac died at 180 years old. It says Esau came, and together with Jacob, they buried Isaac in Hebron. Now notice this statement in verse 29, and we'll call it a night. Notice the statement where it says that Isaac died and was gathered to his people, or gathered to his kinspeople. Here are words. I told you at the beginning to look for this at the end. We'd see this another this other continuing mindset going on. Here are words that continue to express both a cloudy view of what occurs to someone after death, and it reflects a continuation of ancestor worship mindset to a degree. Did they really think that Isaac was now living on the other side of death with his ancestors? Probably. They did in some undefined way. But by now, by this time in history, the expression, he died and was gathered to his kinspeople, primarily indicated a peaceful death after a long lifespan. Okay? Such a thing would not have been said about Isaac had he been murdered or died young or was executed for breaking the law. Next week we'll get into chapter 36.